Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up at this hour, a discussion of the history of mining. We're going to talk about Kennecott. A new book out, A Kennecott Story, Three Mines, Four Men, and 100 Years, 1897 to 1997. The author is Charles Hawley. He's going to join us from Alaska. First, unfinished business from yesterday. We uh, revisited our conversation on a year of no sugar. Eve Schaub uh, was concerned about the sugar consumption that her family was uh, experiencing, and so she challenged her husband and uh, two children to join her in the year of no added sugar. We talked about that, and we received this email from Kylie in Moab. We were on tape yesterday, so we weren't able to respond, but I'll throw this out to... uh, Fellow listeners, maybe you can respond to uh, Kylie. Here's what Kylie says. Does anyone want to address the overabundance of candida illnesses? Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because of the overabundance of sugar people are consuming. So I looked up candida. It's a uh, genus of uh, yeasts, most common cause of fungal infections uh, worldwide. Uh, Kylie is uh, linking up the this overabundance with the overabundance of sugar people are consuming. You can respond to that on our website, upr.org. You can uh, email us at upraxcess at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Utah Public Radio. Turning to our subject for today, while copper seems less glamorous than gold, it may be far more important, as it was vital to the Industrial Revolution, indispensable for electrification. Kennecott Copper Corporation, at one time the largest producer of copper in the world, played a key role in economic and industrial development. In his new book, A Kennecott Story, as I mentioned, Charles Hawley tells the story of how Kennecott was formed from the merger of three mining operations in Alaska, Utah, and Chile, how it led the way in mining technologies, and how it was in turn affected by the economy and politics of the day. And its narrative follows a fascinating story of four key mining engineers. We'll uh, talk about all of that, the human element, the uh, sustainability issues as well with uh, Charles Hawley, who joins us from Alaska. Charles Hawley, welcome to the program. Good, um, good morning, and I'm glad to be on the radio station with you. You're, uh, you're in Anchorage, I believe? Yes, I'm, I'm in Anchorage, Alaska, which is not a mining town, but uh, at least historically was very important to the development of some of the mines in Alaska, one of which was the Bonanza, a very rich mine that belonged to Kennecott Copper Company. Anyway, I'm I'm Alaska, and I guess I might note that uh, the title, my title, open title, was A Kennecott Story. And by that I imply that... uh, it's not the Kennecott story, it's a Kennecott story, but it's the things that that interested me strongly and also uh, where I could obtain materials to so we could tell the history of the story and, and how, how it could develop. Now on the front... Anyway, I'm uh, very glad to be on, oh, on the air with you. Y- yes, yes, we're, we're uh, grateful that you're on it as well. Um, on the, the cover of the book, by the way, this is out from University of Utah Press. Uh, yes. We have a picture of the, uh, the the spectacular, we're aware of this, of course, in Utah and, and probably all over the U.S. and, and the world, the spectacular open pit mine. Um, and that's what we know in, in Utah. This, uh, I guess, at one time was the largest producer of, of copper in the world. 
continues to be mined, right? These you know massive vehicles <laughs> would dwarf a man continue to to go into this pit and and uh, and mine the copper. Right. Uh, so uh, let's start with the the Alaska Bonanza mine. This was an incredibly rich uh, find. Where where where's the, where's the Bonanza mine? Okay, the Bonanza mine is in the Wrangell Mountains of southeastern uh, southeast central Alaska. It uh, it was about 200 miles from Tidewater, so the uh, mine discovered around 1900, and it took to about 11 years to open it up, and even so, that was a major accomplishment because you had to, to before you even started mining, you had to build almost 200 miles of, of standard gauge railroad to come in, but uh, it was it was sustainable because of the richness of the or it's estimated that during the first two years of its operation, the production might have averaged as much as 50 percent copper, which is incredible, and nothing nothing even known today. But it also was not very large, and it I believe was had a total production of about four and a half million tons, which was about 22 years of production. And when, we're, of course, we're at Bingham Canyon, which is mining after 100 years, still mining, and looks like it could continue mining for another 40 or 50 years. Hmm. So uh, the, the difficulty, this is a very rich mine, so if you can get to the to the ore, you're, you know, you're okay. Uh, the, the other two mines we'll talk about had some other difficulties. The difficulty here in Alaska was getting it to market, I guess, right? Well, in a way, yes, I, I'd say it, it is. A, but that they did sell you, they did solve that issue, and uh, so they they could get get it to market, and also they could, uh, they were. The way the ore body was shaped, it was very, they could get very good mining costs. So back mm. in the older days when when copper was selling for 13 or 14 cents, Kennecott, Alaska could get the pound of their copper to New York for five cents a pound. Mm. So they were not only rich, they were a low-cost producer and uh, anyway. So let's back up. Let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about copper before the Industrial Revolution and before electricity. Uh, it, it, as you say, in the end of the, the, the jacket of the book, uh, copper seems less glamorous than gold. Gold's always had a fascination for us, hasn't it? But copper has been very important, especially once we got to electricity. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about copper before that, though. Okay. Uh, of course, one of the... One of the reasons why copper was was important, even back before the revolution, the American and, and the Industrial Revolution, was that copper has certain properties. One thing, it is malleable and, and ductile. And in, in, say, in the year 200 or before, one of the main large scale uses of copper was a sheathing. And the sheathing was used to make roofing materials, 
to sheath the bottom of wooden ships, where it was important because a wooden ship could rot out the barnacles within three years, but if you cover the bottom of it and uh, with uh, copper metal, thin sheets of copper metal, you could make much, much longer operation. And then, of course, it has some, some, some other elements like, uh, well, Paul Revere, besides making copper sheets, also made uh, utensils out of copper and, and also bronze, which is copper plus tin, or brass, which is copper plus zinc. So it, it could those it could uses those, and 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 they mostly were come came from at least in the early uh, in around eighteen hundred the largest mines in the world were in 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 England in Cornwall mm. in Cornwall so, yeah yeah and it it Which is it, a very very scenic place, home of Doc Martin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a wonderful series. <laughs> Every time I see the series, I want to go there. So maybe I have to book my trip. Oh man, it, it's yeah. it's been there. It's really worthwhile, and it's so it's scenic, and it's historic, and uh, and I'm sure we had the opportunity to go there one time with friends, and, and we visited mines and and the seashore, and anyway, well, that's another story. Well, I'm I'm kind of interested in that parenthetically. We've talked a little bit about that. You went down in some of those mines, did you? No, we we got there over over Easter vacation, so we could not go oh, down. But okay. we got in the windows and right. stored inside and and could see the equipment, which at that time was rather uh, primitive. I was uh, I was talking to someone. We we were talking about coal, coal mining. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly. We had a couple of discussions on this on this program, and uh, the, the story, heartbreaking story, was told. I think this was in Wales, probably. Of uh, they they would send horses down down the mines. They would spend their entire lives uh, mostly down in the mines, and when they'd come back up, they would they'd be blind. It's kind of a kind of a sad story. Some of the, some of the cost right. of cost of mining. But, you know to, that. that was uh, even when I grew up in southern Indiana, why well, I can remember coal mines having horses or ponies hauling the ore out and basically staying underground in t- entire lives. So that's not too, that's not too, uh, you know, it, it, it's not, we're, we're almost contemporaneous with that at least. And now, of course, I don't think there's any mine in, coal mine in the U.S. that uses horsepower, but conceivably there could be uh, not developed parts, parts of the world where that where they still did that. By the way, um, if you just joined us, we're talking with Charles uh, Hawley. He's a geologist, worked with the uh, U.S. Geological Survey, and then he had consulting companies uh, for, for mines. The book is A Kennecott Story, Three Mines, Four Men, and 100 Years. It's out from University of Utah Press. We're going to be discussing mining again about a week from now, next Wednesday. Uh, we are uh, piggybacking, essentially, on the Morning Edition Book Club, which I hope you're participating in, and uh, we're, we're discussing Deep Down Dark, the story of that uh, miraculous rescue of those Chilean miners. Uh, and so we'll be uh, getting your comments on the mining in general and on that particular story. Uh, you can share your thoughts on that book going to UPR 
upr.org, upr.org. And so, by the way, I wanted to bring this, uh, Mr. Holly, to uh, to this discussion o- on our website. Uh, we have uh, we have this extraordinary picture um, that our that our web uh, manager found. It's a uh, the caption is an image of a young Finlander who worked in the mines in Utah around the turn of the century, 1900. And so this is just a little guy. He's, I don't know, he's, he's maybe five or six years old. His, his pickaxe is as big as him. Uh, <laughs> I guess this is before child labor laws. He's apparently going down the mines. Uh, and, right. and I don't know, maybe I think that sort of thing happens, you know, around the world today. Yes, I'm sure it does in, in remote parts of China or India. There would be they would use like block breaker blocks that it did in the coal mines of Pennsylvania a hundred years ago. Mm. But there would be locations where I'm sure this still still happens. Also, one thing it uh, the, the early mines of say a hundred years ago standard. Mine safety was not a major consideration. And uh, the standards then are entirely different than there weren't any standards then. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, and, and also, and, and a uh, open pit mine like the Bingham is inherently more safe than an underground mine, although with Use, use, use and care and strong equipment and strong holdings materi- materials, a modern underground mine can be as safe or essentially as safe. We're going to take a, b- a brief break. When we come back, more with Charles Hawley. A Kennecott story is, uh, is the story. Uh, the story of three mines, uh, one in Alaska. We talked a little bit about that. The Bonanza, incredibly rich. Uh, the Bingham Canyon mine, which we're all familiar with here in Utah. That's on the cover of the book. And El Teniente mine in uh, in Chile, which was uh, a massive underground mine. Each of these mines uh, produced innovations, technological innovations. We'll talk about that and we'll get into talking about the fascinating stories of the four men of the subtitle, mining engineers who uh, pushed forward the history of mining in uh, in the world and in the United States and here in Utah as well. Uh, more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan. We're celebrating the music of the Ozarks on this week's Wood Songs broadcast. Artists from all across the state of Arkansas and special guest Leroy Troy and the Tennessee Mafia Jugbent. Live from Eureka Springs, Arkansas, it's the Wood Songs Old Time Radio Hour. Friday night at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. 
This is called the fight or flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. A history of mining is what we're talking about on the program today. It's Access U Time. Tom Williams. The book is a Kennecott story. Three mines, four men, one hundred years, eighteen ninety seven to nineteen ninety seven. The author is geologist Charles Hawley, and he joins us on the line from Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation by telephone to 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email. The address is upraxis at gmail.com. That's upraxis at gmail.com. We're on uh, Facebook, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And uh, from UPR, we have uh, tweeted, did you know there are 174 mining districts in Utah? Silver, copper, coal, and uranium have been unearthed here. And then Gunnison Copper Mine favorited our tweet, so thanks for that. So you can join us there as well. Uh, before we get into this, the fascinating stories of the Bingham Canyon Mine and the Teniente, El Teniente Mine in Chile, Mr. Charlie, I want to, uh, I'm curious about how you got into an interest in this. You said you grew up, I guess, near mines in Indiana? Well, yes, in, in Indiana. I guess it's a little bit strange. I, as a boy, uh, already had interest in rocks, and I, but I, I really thought about being a a uh, uh, in the in the story of mining and history, and and also uh, archaeology. And I remember once since I was a very Good, good boy, good early boy, maybe maybe ten years old. I thought I'd be an archaeologist, and I, somebody introduced me to an archaeologist at the university, and I told him that's what I wanted to be. And he looked at me square in the eye and said, "Do you have an independent income?" And I said, <laughs> "No, I don't have an independent income." And he says, "Well, you better not be an archaeologist." <laughs> so I decided at that moment. Yeah. That I would not be an archaeologist. I would be a geologist. Yeah. And I, and I maintained that throughout my life. So you still work with rocks and such, but you can make a living. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you you work for U.S. Geological Survey, and then you had your own consulting uh, company. Um, so where where I guess worked around the world. Where all did you did you well, go? United States and Canada. And, and okay. Although we did have. We did have some work in England and and North Korea, Korea, but basically we were an American company that uh, functioned mostly in America, but then Canada, and then after that, some of the other, like Korea, hmm. we tried to sell coal to the Koreans. Oh, okay. How did that go? It it was fairly it was fairly fairly successful, although we never really. Got to the point where we where we wanted 
to have a large mine in production. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, uh, yeah, it's just too. Too, too much spread tape and too much, and also we were playing in a ball game where the large players were the mining companies and where we where we could by ingenuity we could get could do could compete but it was it was difficult. Hmm. By the way, we should we should uh, move the story of copper forward. Uh, so you were talking about uh, copper before electrification, before the industrial revolution, uh, but copper became very important once we once we got electricity. I guess copper is a good conductor electricity. Well, yes, it's one of the one of the best. Well, the only ones that are better are silver and gold, and they're they're really too costly to be used on a routine basis. So you have to. Copper was extremely important. So and copper, copper, still important today. I guess we still most of the wires are still copper. Yes, yes. and some of the inexpensive uses can use aluminum, but basically, copper is still the metal of choice when you're talking about electrical conductivity. Hmm. And so it depended on men like Tesla, Tesla, to found out who's Copper experiments led him to uh, uses that were more efficient than, say, well, Tesla was competing against Thomas Edison, and and uh, in a way, Edison went out. But over or copper is just much more efficient, and also it has. Other desirable properties too. So, t- uh, so tell me. Uh, let's let's jump into talking about the Bingham Canyon mine. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, I think at the beginning they were noticing uh, what copper in the in the streams in the area, and that that led to uh, you know what what today is the the massive operation. One time, the biggest producer of uh, copper. In the world, in this this massive open pit mine, I wonder if you could uh, we get into this. Me uh, tell me about um, the techniques that were used at the time, and, the, and the, maybe the problems that had to be overcome. Well, as we main main talked earlier, the uh, main problems were logistic, but there. They had to develop mining techniques, and they had to develop machinery, like so that large mining could be. And and all the early mines were rather high grade. You had to be have about five or ten percent copper before your mine could be economic. And and the, the uh, more or less the, the authorities of the day. Said you you never can copper in produced in, at three percent, and so uh, Bingham at Bingham Canyon, D.C. Jacqueline said that yes, we can by using the economies of scale, we can produce copper at much lower cost, and this is. This came at just a time when when cities were being electrified, and they had to have copper. But still, there were people 
in fact, the consensus in the mining industry was that you 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 had to have say five or ten percent economic copper to be economic. Well, Jacqueline said, "No, that's not true. If we if we use uh, electrical electric haulage, if we use modern, if we use steam engines, if we use equipment, we can we can mine and and still make a profit, but it's still not. It began well. Connecticut continues to modern to modernize today. For example, with computer-controlled mining operations, mm-hmm. they had to they had to have uh, it just they had to be innovative and the uh, the main difference between Bingham and El Teniente is that Bingham more body more or less outcropped at the surface where it was oxidized in place and could mine as in the oxide form. In El Teniente it 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 was too it had to be mined underground by a technique called caving. We extract some of the rock material deep in the earth and then then, then mining the ore falls down into and is drawn out from the bottom of the mine. That's that's uh, so. Now, Jackling, I uh, understand he was he was kind of known as the Henry Ford of, of mining. He 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 pushing as you said for these economies of scale, which also included techniques such as uh, flotation. That uh, you also had to make the economy work by. Employing thousands of men at uh, twenty-five cents a day. Right, <laughs> he didn't pay them too well. Yeah, but uh, well, the, the Guggenheims at at Kennecott, Alaska, and and also being uh, Braden at El they were probably a little bit better to their employees. Although over the years, Kennecott caught up and. In 1942, I believe, under uh, under Stannard, why Kennecott uh, or authorized the unions into op- into the operations, mm. and uh, but there was a whole there's a whole package on of, of material available on uh, on labor practices and labor problems and and how these these had to evolve in order in order to maintain and and have a modern mining industry. And the mining, I think, you know, it's it's inherently dangerous. It's just especially the underground so it's form. It's inherently it's inherently dangerous because big rocks can fall and fall on you, and and also your your or even pyrite will burn. So. Uh, it's rather inherently dangerous, but you should, there are modern-day mines to go for years without a fatal action, so mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it's quite different, and it's also kind of cut, contributed to a great amount of, of uh, knowledge on how to do mines safely and, and inexpensively, and, and so... 
can maintain their operation. And El Teniente, unfortunately, was lost to Kennecott in 1971. It was appropriated by by Allende. Oh, yeah. Nationalized, huh? Yeah. It was nationalized. Yeah. And, of course, that that was through Kennecott lost that main, major, major asset. And it, it had been extremely important in Depression days. The richness of El Teniente was what kept Kennecott alive. And, and Kennecott, because of El Teniente, paid dividends all the way through the Depression. Oh, interesting. So yeah. it's just, uh, you know, there's so many stories in the Kennecott story that, uh, anyway. Yeah, fa- uh, fascinating history. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, geologist uh, Charles uh, Hawley. Had a career with U.S. Geological Survey and and, and independent consulting for for mines. He's written this uh, this book from uh, University of Utah Press, a Kennecott story: three mines, four men, one hundred years, eighteen ninety seven to nineteen ninety seven. And uh, Mr. Holly, we do have this uh, email. By the way, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. You can call us at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And uh, we're on Facebook as well. And by the way, we're inviting you to join us uh, at upr.org, where you'll find uh, over on the right-hand side um, our uh, Utah chapter of the Morning Edition uh, book club. And this month, they are reading Deep Down Dark, the uh, story of a miraculous uh, recovery of 33 men buried in a Chilean mine, the miracle that set them free. And it addresses faith, safety, economics, technology, survival of humanity under difficult circumstances. We've formed a UPR chapter of this book club and inviting you to discuss the issues in the book. Read the book along with us. Uh, On Wednesday, we're going to uh, devote Access Utah to a discussion of uh, this book. So I hope you'll join us for that as well. Right now, join us at upr.org. So we do have uh, an email here. I'll uh, read this to you, get your response, Mr. Holly. This is from Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. He says, I'm wondering if your guest is familiar with another copper mining titan of the 19th century, James Douglas, for whom the copper mining town of Douglas, Arizona is named. Douglas, the ancestor of friends of mine, started out as a physician, but turned to mining and invented an important process, the Hunt-Douglas process for extracting copper from ore. I believe he transformed Phelps Dodge from a trading company into principally a mining company, though I don't know much about him. Uh, can your guest fill in some of this history, talking about uh, James Douglas? Yes, well, the two companies, Phelps Dodge and, and Kennecott, went on, on separate tracks. Uh, Kennecott's ore were mostly sulfide ore. They were copper copper sulfide. The uh, calcopyrite was the main copper mineral. In, uh, in, in Arizona, and with uh, James Douglas, Phelps Dodge looked for ores that had been oxidized and contained uh, copper carbonates that were soluble in weak acids and could be obtained like that. And so Kennecott, for uh, I guess until perhaps recently, well, operated their obtained their copper by smelting of sulfide ores. And Phelps Dodge went the opposite track. They looked for ores that had already been oxidized in place and where they could be 
can it could be obtained electrolytically. Uh, Kennecott, in some of his operations, uses electrolytic recovery. But uh, but Jane Douglas and and Phelps Dodge have specialized in the in the uh, extraction of copper electrolytically, and it uh, has some environmental advantages. Kennecott solved their problems by by going to more and more efficient uh, smelters where their their modern smelters don't re- recover they recover 99% of all the copper and men and only a trace amount of atom of sulfur joins the atmosphere but uh, and and we treat this just a little bit in the book because we have to we have to contrast the type of book that Kennecott is, which is an open pit sulfide mine with uh, open pits, which which mine can use use the oxidized ore and mine ele- and recover copper electrolytically. Uh, I'd like to, to have you talk a little bit about uh, Daniel Guggenheim, Charlie. That you have an inscription in the book. Uh, I'll just quote this. This is from L.A. Levensoller. If he had done, referring to Daniel Guggenheim, if he had done in any foreign country what he did had done in Alaska, he would have been knighted. But in this country, he was indicted, which kind of uh, it speaks to the, uh, I guess, differences in development of, of mining and how it fits into the culture and also the, the movement of history. Uh, tell me a little bit about Daniel Guggenheim. Well, Guggenheim and, and Jackling was was an orphan. Uh, he had lost his mother, I, I think, uh, one year, and then, and then two years later he lost his father. Perhaps that should be the other, other way around, but basically Jackling was born in back in, uh, in central in Missouri, and was raised there by a, an aunt, and and but yet he was basically very very poor. He uh, he just he learned uh, by observation. He learned that school teachers made may not have made a lot more money, but they had a lot of influence. And so he decided at a very early age to to get a teaching license and, and while he was teaching he got he also observed that engineers and surveyors were also well compensated and so he went as soon as he could able was able to he entered the Missouri School of Mines and he stayed there earned a bachelor's degree in metallurgy and then Met up some of the met some of the people in Colorado and Utah, uh, and were were just by hard work and being able to tough enough and smart enough that anybody else, uh, Jacqueline could could well probably as far as as DC said, Jacqueline is concerned. If it's only open pit copper mining, he has more responsibility for the than than anybody else. I mean, I suppose uh, Graydon 
for the for for uh, underground mining, but Jacqueline was was, was hard to compete with. He not only brought Kennecott to the being a mine, but he also brought, he brought mine company to Ray to mines in New Mexico, and so. Uh, the uh, Jacqueline, and then he was probably the most highly regarded mining engineer of the first half of the 20th century. Hmm. Almost certainly. We're going to take another uh, another break. We'll uh, be back uh, with more with uh, Charles Hawley. He has has written a new book out from University of Utah Press called A Kennecott Story, and uh, we'll have more, including uh, we'll talk about the uh, the scale. I think I think that's what uh, so fascinates people about the Bingham Canyon mine, for for example, and there I'm sure there are other examples. And underground, the El Teniente mine would would be equally impressive. Talk about that, and uh, talk about a couple of the other fascinating uh, men, the four men of the subtitle. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. On the next On Being, rebellion as an act of meaningful creation. It's an act of rebellion to show up as someone trying to be whole, and I would add, as someone who believes that there is a hidden wholeness beneath the very evident brokenness of our world. A cross-generational conversation with Parker Palmer and Courtney Martin. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the history of mining. Uh, that's out from University of Utah Press. A Kennecott story, Three Mines, Four Men, and 100 Years, 1897 to 1997. The author is Charles Hawley, who has joined us uh, by telephone from his home in Anchorage, Alaska. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, and you can join us uh, to uh, up, at, UPR, at uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, I got myself confused there. At Utah Public Radio on Twitter. Uh, by the way, we're going to be talking about uh, mining issues again next week. We'll have the inaugural program on uh, our UPR chapter of the Morning Edition Book Club. And uh, nationwide, people are discussing Deep Down Dark, uh, which is a book about the uh, Chilean uh, mine and the 33 miners who were miraculously uh, recovered there. I think we all were glued to our television sets during that. And uh, Hector Tobar has written a book, Deep Down Dark, and we're discussing that in the UPR chapter of the Morning Edition Book Club, and we'll have that on Access Utah, a discussion led, hopefully, by you. That is on Wednesday, and that's uh, coming up right now. You can uh, join the book club in the discussion at upr.org. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Hawley, I'd, I'd like to talk about scale. This it, it, It's so impressive. You look at the picture on the uh, the book jacket here of your book, the uh, this massive open pit uh, mine, uh, in uh, Bingham Canyon. Uh, I, I was, uh, just to illustrate this, I was uh, talking to a friend who had uh, talked to another friend who worked, uh, who works, I think, still at the Bingham Canyon mine um, as a mechanic. 
uh, repairing these uh, these massive dump trucks. And uh, the, my friend recounted the, the fact that uh, this fellow uh, takes a takes a chair. He he sits uh, in the engine compartment while he's while he's uh, repairing these uh, engines. And then he has to make sure the driver knows that he's out because you can close the hood and he'd still be sitting there. These are massive vehicles. That's just one example of the huge scale that we're talking about here. You, know, you stand next to their tires and you're, you're dwarfed. And also one tire might cost $100,000. So it's quite the huge the capacity of two or 300 tons per day. And, and they're, they're the, the modern Bingham Canyon mine uses uh, trucks and shovels and conveyor belts to transport their ore. They started out in the first, under jackling, they started out under using rail transportation, uh, first of all steam, and then electricity. So it's just, uh, they've continually evolved, and they've had to to compete. Um, Jackling if there's anyone at probably one mine can have open pit credit for developing the technique, it would be jackling. Although each one of the of our people, Bert's uh, Jack uh, Graydon and Stannard, contributed to those events. Uh, Stannard was an interesting character. He wasn't too well liked by the miners, but but he was very, very efficient, and he very inventive. And in the Kennecott, uh, about over half of their ore wasn't calcus, copper sulfide ore. It was oxidized ore that contained the green and blue copper minerals, malachite and azurite, which was not, those minerals were not being recovered by the, the uh, sulfide process that that uh, was used at the underground mine. So Stannard invented a process where where the copper carbonate ore could be recovered by dissolving in ammonia, and then you just uh, well copper is is soluble in ammonia solutions, so you can dissolve the oxidized oxide copper, and then recover it by by boiling off the, uh, the so you, you're just the only thing you're sell, selling is pure copper oxide, and all that would have been lost without the inventions of Standard. Standard, he also was responsible to the construction of the for, of the corporation in World War II. So. He also died a tragic death as one of the first airplane bomb incidents. Oh, so. yeah. Uh, we're getting near the end of the program, just uh, three or four minutes left, uh, and I want to get into, uh, you, you talk about issues of um, environment and sustainability, sort of let list readers make up their own minds on these, but I, I want to, near at the very end, in the epilogue, I just want to read this passage, get you to respond to this. Uh, you're uh, quoting an author named Lacan. Um and uh, who apparently in his book Mass Destruction uh, criticizes the human, you know, human record here. Uh, early on, at least, uh, mining companies, uh, some of them were were careless with 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 human resources. 
But uh, you, you write, he understands, however, that resources are necessary and have to be produced, talking about the copper, etc., even though production may ultimately prove incapable of supplying an overly crowded world. Lacan proposes a re-examination of destructive technologies and cultures, and he writes, and you quote Lacan, The first step might prove the most difficult, rejecting pernicious divisions of modernity and instead learning to see humans and their technologies as entirely natural and inextricable parts of nature. But if the New West and the nation as a whole can make that leap, they might yet lead the way in creating a culture and society built upon environmentally sustainable system of mining, manufacturing, consumption, and recycling. So you're getting, you're quoting Lacan and getting at uh, this uh, idea that uh, humans and their technologies are natural and inextricable. Yeah, Lacan has very interesting ideas and He's based, he's a very good historian, and he, he really documents some of the problems that that happened because, well, for example, sulfide ores, you have to treat them right, otherwise they're, they're going to be very toxic. On the, on the other hand, people have learned how to do that. They've learned how to make smelters that don't produce any smoke, and, and um, McCain was very, very different. I think he he fears mostly large-scale operations that pay little or no attention to 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 the cause that they ultimately cause. But he also recognizes that that we are consumptors, and if we can do things differently, we we may may be able to solve some of the problems in, in, uh, and also pull together people who otherwise would they would have, would uh, have, have a cause on the environment. I thought it was a very, very interesting book and uh, I think it's worth, worth reading. So in Utah, as you, as you probably know, coal is controversial in some circles, and we're a big coal producer here. Uh, you know, the, the greenhouse gases and, and the like, coal a contributor to that. But I suppose some, some uh, resources that you would mine, like copper, as long as we're going to have electricity, we probably need copper, right? So there's, that's maybe what Lacan is, is getting to. You're, you're, you're always going to be having to, to get some resources. you would even go to coal itself where you where you, you have to you have to have energy and to have energy you have to have some kind of you probably have to have uranium or coal or oil or you know it's just and so you, you you well first of all you tend to you should solve the problems that the use of those materials solve to, to bring bring to the market. But uh, anyway, I, I, I think I really appreciate being able, getting the opportunity to talk to your sis, to talk to your sis. 
Well, we appreciate uh, having you on. I appreciate that. Uh, Charles Hawley has uh, joined us from Anchorage, Alaska. He's a geologist, a uh, long career in the, in the field of uh, mining. And he's written an interesting book. It's out from University of Utah Press. Uh, much interesting material here. A Kennecott story, three mines, four men, and 100 years. Uh, Charles Hawley, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, to get a reminder, we are inviting you to join the UPR chapter of the Morning Edition uh, Book Club. And the book this month is uh, Deep Down Dark. It's the uh, story, extraordinary story that uh, we, I think we're all glued to the television, the 33 men buried in the Chilean mine, the miracle that set them free. The book is Deep Down Dark. Uh, author is... Uh, and uh, we are... Uh, we are reading that book as a UPR community. We'll be talking about that, the discussion hopefully led by you, on Wednesday's Access Utah. In the meantime, thanks for listening. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And coming this week on our up this week on our community calendar, we have the Cache Valley Center for the Arts beginning to a 10-week course in ceramics at the Bolin Art Center. The Grand Theater in Salt Lake City will feature the production to Billy and Ella with Love on January 8th through 10th. And the Brigham City Museum of Art and History is featuring the exhibit Our Lives, Our Stories on display through January 10th. And you can view all these details on our website at upr.org. And now for some Utah news. Mayor Craig Peterson of Logan spoke of ways to increase the city's production of green energy. UPR's Evan Hall tells us more about the campaign to use clean electricity. On Tuesday, the Logan City Council met for the first time this year to hear Mayor Craig Peterson deliver his State of the City address. This year's speech was the first under Peterson, who highlighted various city projects completed during 2014 and shared his aspirations for the coming year. Green energy production featured prominently in those aspirations. Peterson announced that a deal was struck to use the excess heat from natural gas pipelines to generate electricity. He says that obtaining electricity this way will put that excess heat to good use. We signed a contract called the AHO contract. Basically, the, the way that this works is there's a large natural gas pipeline. As the gas is put through the pipeline and compressed, it generates a significant amount of excess heat. And what this project does is capture that heat and turn it into electricity. So this is green in the sense that what's happening right now is the, the heat is just being dissipated in the air. Now, there's now this now creates a useful uh, use for that heat. Peterson proposed a consortium that would connect Logan residents with solar panel providers and installers. He says that the city's power and light authorities should make solar-generated electricity an option for those without solar panels. We're going to make it easier for people who want to put solar panels on their roofs by creating a solar consortium. For people that may not want to put solar panels on the roof, our proposal is that we'll create a community solar program. And the idea is that people who so desire could sign up to obtain a block of their electricity generated with solar panels. They'd be guaranteed a fixed rate over a period of 20 years. 
It was also announced that a new material waste transfer station for the city has been completed. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Evan Hall. Thank you, Evan. And two Utahns from Utah County have tested positive for measles after returning from vacation from California. UPR's Travis Johnson has the story. The two infected Utahns are linked to a larger outbreak that occurred at Disneyland between December 15th to December 20th. Rebecca Ward, a Utah Department of Health epidemiologist, says that measles is a major public health risk. Well, measles can be very serious. It is spread through respiratory droplets from a person coughing or sneezing. It can cause some severe complications, especially in uh, immunocompromised people or very young people that have medical conditions. So it can be very serious, causing inflammation of the lining of the brain and, uh, and other things. The main concern with measles is how contagious it is. The virus can hang in the air where a sick person has been for a number of hours, and 90% of exposures lead to illness in those who are unvaccinated. Ward says it is possible that the disease could be spread to anyone who has been in contact with either of these infected people. And finding and tracking all these possible exposures is the main public health objective now. We contact people that have had direct contact with the two infected individuals to make sure that they have either been vaccinated or can get vaccinated, or if it's necessary to quarantine people at home if they choose not to become vaccinated. Ward went on to say that getting fully vaccinated for measles is the best way to prevent contracting and spreading the disease. For more information and a list of possible exposure sites, visit upr.org. With Utah Public Radio, this is Travis Johnson. Thank you, Travis. And for Access Utah and Utah News, I'm Andrew Robertson. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 